Vintage Sustainability, a podcast where Gordon and John look back at 25 years of sustainable buildings. So John, it might be useful just to tell listeners about energy performance certificates or APCs as they crop up in our conversations occasionally. So an energy performance certificate or an EPC been in use in the UK since 2007 um, and they're used all across the European Union and they were introduced to create sort of consumer awareness of building energy efficiency. So um, people will be familiar with the labels on say a refrigerator with the A, B, C, D, E, F, G type rating, A being the best. So these are the same sort of labels for buildings and the label is generated by carrying out a software analysis of the building and looking at its carbon dioxide emissions performance. So the A would be the lowest and G will be the worst. So for example, the Lion House project that we saw in episode one, it had a rating of minus 14, so it's very unusual, um, but it was an innovative building, meaning it wasn't producing any CO2. So the photovoltaics and the wind power would produce more electricity than the building would use so that would be exported <clears throat> so you know zero emissions electricity exported and the heating system would be using biomass which is a net uh, zero co2 um, heating solution as well so there would be no co2 from that so the building suddenly had a rating of minus 14 couldn't be better than a but then it had the a rating but as we saw on our visit of course some of these technologies have changed so they no longer use biomass for heating and when we were there, the PV um, certainly would be fine, but the wind turbines had been um, taken down because of damage after Storm Arwen. So I think the EPCs have to be re-examined every 10 years. So they crop up a bit. Um, and in the research literature, people look to whether they've had an effect on consumer awareness of energy performance. Anyhow, I hope that's a little bit of background that might help. So on this podcast, John and I are going to talk to uh, Kevin Muldoon-Smith of Northumbria University, who's doing research into the effect of the MEES regulations, uh, which, which relates to energy performance certificates. Um, the MEES regulations um, came in um, in 2018 and said that um, landlords must improve sort of rented properties um, if they had an APC or FRG. So they had to get down to an EPC of E. So the sort of drive behind these regulations is to drive our existing building stock, um, carbon efficiency and energy efficiency to higher and higher uh, standards or lower EPCs heading towards, say, an E. So currently they must be at least an E. So if people have an F or a G building, it must be taken all the way down to an E. And the trajectory is, for example, that this standard will become a necessity of an EPC of B by 2030. So he's going to talk to Kevin about his research, which is looking at banks and investors and what this might mean when they look at their property portfolios. And for John and I, I guess, what the interest here is, are vintage sustainable buildings. To what extent have the innovators sort of future-proofed their building stock by going for sustainable buildings sort of in advance of these regulations. So here we are chatting to Kevin. <laughs> I'm in your capable hands. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're talking about 
the minimum energy efficiency standards or the MEES regulations. Yeah, so, so the original paper I published probably in 2019 um, kind of came from the world of kind of the murky world of stranded assets where X amount of fossil fuels have been accumulated and found. It has a certain value. Um, if you're then going to achieve 2050 climate rules, you're only going to be able to burn a certain amount of that. So it means yes. it's going to be X amount, quite a bit of the resources that can't be burned. The risk then is that those assets will be devalued over time. Yes. If everything comes to pass for those climate rules. There's quite a bit of exposure out there upstream, kind of in the fossil fuel world, that kind of got their head around it. Yes. Downstream, and not just property, but in everything else allied that uses fossil fuels, there's less kind of emphasis on that issue. So the paper that we did in 2019, we tried to get a kind of a crude understanding of the exposure and the risk in um, in the international property market, really. And we used EPCs and minimum energy rules as kind of a, a proxy for the risk. And I feel like in retrospect, I probably went a little bit too far with the argument. And I said, you know, and it was published, it was great. But the minimum energy rules and the EPCs were, were, were a great proxy for actual fossil fuel consumption and how much buildings were being used for. Yes, um, you would assume that's the case. The, I think it's intuitive and I think yeah. that's what banks are doing. Banks are lending on that basis, you know, when they're talking about energy security, um, energy poverty, you know, the cost of energy, all that type of stuff. The argument is kind of interchangeable. EPCs, minimum energy rules, fossil fuel consumption, 2050 targets. But actually, when you look at the EPCs, as far as I can see, and hopefully this is where yeah, we'll help me. About it, yeah. um, EPCs don't necessarily measure fossil fuel consumption. They measure something that's slightly different, which is more about kind of the efficiency of the building. So, yes. so there's two sides to it. We want to first of all understand what EPCs do at the moment in terms of how they capture the, the fossil fuel yes. consumption exposure issue. Then ideally, as we go forward, we want to think about how the EPC regime, I guess, can be improved maybe a little bit or tweaked to capture that situation a little bit more. Because you would like to think that EPCs on that sliding scale of A to G, you would like to think that there was a correlation between the best properties and those properties that used least fossil fuel. Yes, and you as would, far yeah, as we yeah. can see in our so far quite crude analysis, um, that isn't the case. Right, okay. So I think I think what we're seeing here is the EPC, the energy label, the, you know, the, the regulations in the UK are, are making buildings sort of have to go, if they're a G, from a G to yeah. an E to a C to an A. So yeah. the energy performance certificate is being used as the vehicle to drive us to zero or net zero carbon buildings in like 20 years time. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is, that, is that the right tool or does the tool need some sort of adjustment to get it to be more effective? I think yeah. that's what it That's exactly what it is. I think right. it, at the moment... I think the tool doesn't quite do, doesn't quite drive fossil fuel divestment. I think it does something slightly different. I think it actually, as a tool though, it's very successful because it's, it's market understood. Everyone understands what an EPC is. It's a great benchmarking tool. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't take issue in the research necessarily with an EPC. You know, I think it does what it literally says on the label. Everyone knows it's there. It's a good system. Mm -hmm. But we feel it could drive 
and should drive, and you would intuit if you think that it does, it would be driving yeah. fossil fuel divestment and movable over into renewables. Okay, so I'll give, give an example really from my, my background as a designer. Yeah. So we're doing a project that, that wanted to be a brand outstanding, so it would be the highest class of sort of low carbon uh, green building. And the design had ground source heat pump, natural ventilation, solar thermal panels, uh, you know, we had sort of wind, urban wind turbines in the car park, we, we had everything. And we ran the APC and we were a B. Now, to get a BREM outstanding, you have to be an A at that time. Yeah. So it's slightly different now, but you have to get an A. Yeah. And we had nothing left in our bag apart from PV. Mm. So we just kept increasing the PV on the roof yeah. until they told us we were an A. Yeah. And then we had a 5% on just in case yeah. and we got, we, got, we got it wrong. So in, in a way, I don't think the APC was meant as a design tool, but certainly would be used as one. So the size of the PV was driven by that software turning it to an A yeah. from a B. Yeah. No, there was no sort of other analysis on how much PV would be appropriate. Yeah. So I think it was never a design tool, but certainly would be used one because clients would say, we want an A. Yeah. And in this case, the client said, we want an A, but we don't want biomass. Yeah. You know, so give us an A without that. So I think in, in, in another way, this label, this consumer label ended up being used by designers in a way, it changed the way you designed a bit. Yeah. You know, normally we've done some analysis on the PV, what's the right amount, what's the payback, what's the orientation, but we just kept increasing it. Yeah. And when I've told people, I've said, really, but that is really just what we did. Yeah. So it was kind of the, I guess, the SBEM model, you were kind of being led, yes. led by that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, a little bit noisy and lively in the cafe there, so we head across to <clears throat> Kevin's uh, a sort of a quiet academic office just do a bit of a summary of um, what he's told us the reason that epc and i suppose the associated minimum energy rules are important to investors especially in the commercial property world is because property is extremely expensive and in most cases an investor won't own the property outright it'll usually be underwritten in some way via bank lending real estate finance mm -hmm. and debt and increasingly the banks, as they lend, are taking into account APCs, energy performance, and minimum energy rules. Um, I think across the world, the investors with the really big portfolios manage their, their overall portfolio quite passive, passively. And what I mean by that is um, they're quite detached. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they look at the cash flows over time, they look at the yields and the rent, and they'll take action, you know, once they start to um, dip in performance banks are a lot more active you know they're very aware of their risk exposure across cross property especially following what happened in 2008 and the subprime issue so they're a lot more active in stress testing their their debt position and the buildings have got so they're they're out there understanding um the epc but they also monitor quite closely the actual standard of the building all the time so what's the risk to them of the apc what is it that they're worried about here it's all part of i would say the overall risk position that they will take on a client in a building you know if they're going to lend on a property they have an assumption that it will retain its value and retain right. its tenants and then that pays for the for the debt if the property suddenly loses value that then undermines the debt position so ultimately any bank especially in the commercial world wants the tenant who's in a given building or the combination of tenants to continue paying the income for the duration of the debt if, for example, with minimum energy rules, you suddenly have a property that's below the threshold Let's and it suddenly becomes e illegal to yeah. let, their income position is then very, very 
suspect. And you've got an awful lot of properties out there. You know, the vast majority of buildings you'll look at as you walk around CBDs and city centres, they're all really owned by banks. You know, in a certain extent, that's where the debt comes from. And they need to understand the security of their debt. You know, they, it's that whole LTV position, the loan-to-value ratio. When the debt is given, that property is assumed to be worth something. But if it's suddenly not, if it's suddenly legally obsolescent, basically, because the minimum energy rules have been enforced, mm-hmm. the bank is, has a risk of their assets and their lending um, being undermined. So it's now become a key sort of profile of the asset is its energy performance or its carbon performance. Yeah, it, in a way. It, it, if it's a poor one. It has to be. It'll, it'll it, have it, to modify the building, presumably. Yeah, bring ab- it in, it absolutely. Any, any property that's below the threshold, it has to be modified in order for it to continue producing income to basically pay for the debt. Um, and I think there is, to an extent, as with anything, when you, become, when you get a minimum energy set of rules, a parallel industry um, is created that is also there to try and avoid some of these rules as well. So you do have F and Gs that are still on the market. I think the rules in the minimum energy um, system is that any cost of the improvement needs to be paid off via its energy savings within seven years. Yes. If that isn't the case, then the properties can remain on the market. However, they're publicised on a naughty building register. So that's very public. That then feeds into undermining their corporate objectives, potentially. Yeah. So a lot of scrutiny for someone to be looking at these payback period calculations, perhaps, because are you saying it's potentially helpful if it's longer than seven years to pay back the improved? They don't have to go from an E down to a D. I think the seven, and I'm not a great, I don't have a great lot of information on where the seven-year threshold came from in the first place. It may have been an arbitrary date, but I think when you have, you can imagine that seven-year threshold and the selection of different types of technologies and fuel uses at any given time, there's going to be different payback periods. So that seven-year period feels a little bit arbitrary. Yeah. And mm-hmm. to an extent, it can also be gamed. You know, if we said we went for a certain type of fuel source and it was going to take yes. far longer to pay back, then the property then did not need to achieve a certain threshold. Yes. Um, I, think they have to get, I think they have to get three quote, separate quotations for the technologies as well. Mm-hmm. So the, the way the rules are written are reasonably robust. But whether yeah. anybody is looking at the rules in, in actuality and use... I suspect that's not a game that's been played yet. How leases are being written now in terms of, you know, if somebody's on a 20-year lease and there's going to be one of these thresholds come in, is that down to the the tenant or is it down to the landlord? Well, I think you come across a very, well, I guess one of the main issues in, I wouldn't say the enforcement of minimum energy rules in the commercial world, but how do we... How do we drive improvement in property? There's a huge standoff between the tenant and the landlord and who pays for the improvement. Um, now, for residential, the government did bring in a green finance initiative for a time. There's never been one for commercial. And the reason there was never a green finance model brought in for, so that's backed by government um, improvements in the building. There was never one brought in for commercial because, although there was lots of consultation done on it, there was never any consensus on who would pay for the improvement. Is it going to be the landlord or is it going to be the tenant? And obviously the landlord argued, well, if you give it to us, we'll just increase the, t- increase the rent. And, and it was how that happened. In terms of green lease, in terms of actually how um, the lease is agreed, mm-hmm. um, again, I don't have a great deal of knowledge on this, but I think an EPC is is recorded. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's, a, there's a concession that it should be in there as part of kind of the, the details of the building. Right. I think it's a lot rarer to actually feed in, let's say in parallel, 
um, the progressive improvement of an APC, mm-hmm. you know, let's say alongside, I don't know, rent breaks and that type yes. of stuff and negotiation. Yeah. It's, it's not in there. Um, I would say the, the, the idea, the notion of an APC and the label is in there, but not the progressive improvement yet. Right. And the research here, just starting to look at now, Kevin, about energy sort of use and fossil fuel use and the, the APC register. So what, what are you trying to tease out of that, that research? What I'm trying to tease out with the APC register at the moment really is what information is in there in the public domain that we can use to understand the energy performance of the building and from a rating perspective, which is the main current label that's accepted by society. And then within that, how we can understand how much fossil fuel is actually getting used in a given building. Um, And we're really just trying to get a hold of that situation in terms of first principles. And then as we go forward, we're going to start trying to think about how APCs and the system that surrounds it, minimum energy rules, can be improved to better capture what's actually going on in buildings. Yes. Because you have the label, the hypothetical label, yes. in terms of what's actually going on, that's a very different world. And if we are going to hit the 25 environmental targets, which is to, minim- to, to minimise warming to either 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees, we need to eradicate fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. At the minute, I, my feeling is we don't have a tight grasp on what is actually going on in buildings in commercial property. There are display energy certificates in public buildings, which is mm-hmm. a measurement of actual performance, but there aren't any DECs, that's display energy certificates, in the commercial world. Yes. Just coming back to that standoff between the landlord and tenant and the lack of a green finance initiative also in the commercial world, I think you can see that in parallel also to the lack of a DEC in the commercial world as well. Because once you go down the line of actually understanding how much a building is actually consuming, and what it actually needs to do to improve, you then need to start thinking about who actually needs to pay for the improvement as well. And yes. I think it's those three things that got tied together a little bit and it was never reconciled by government. So I, I would say residential property is a little bit um, more progressive in this country, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the commercial world, you know, when the policies were first put in place in this country for minimum rules, kind of got to a little bit of an impasse and then it was kind of forgotten about. And I think you can see that in the enforcement of minimum energy rules as well, where there's very little formal enforcement. The only real take-up, the only real market enforcement has been via the banks. And I seen this and read just the other day that some landlords are saying that if they have to move their buildings from whatever a D or an E to a C, mm. they'll just come out of the business. Do you, do, do, do you think that? Could happen. It's presumably the cost of the refurbishment to bring it down from a D or an E to a C. So I think there'll be a requirement for a C. What in two or three years' time? Yeah, it is. It's 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 progressive, and I think a lot of landlords will squeal a little bit at the potential mm-hmm. pain in the future. But I think a lot of that is actual, also headache value. You know, a lot of and in, in, I think in the in, in the property world, I think it isn't necessarily the best example of of something that innovates. Um, as kind of a trendsetter. I think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we still build buildings in the same way we built them 300, 400 years ago, you know. Um, <laughs> I think we're saying that a hundred years we do. And we do. So I think a lot of people like to do things as they've all, always done them. And that goes from the individual person up to the, up to the landlord, the organisation, um, and the people who kind of um, scrutinise the market as well. So you get a lot of kind of growing pains when we suggest that things need to be improved. But actually, I, I've kind of got a sense that buildings will be improved because 
there's a lot of imperatives out there. I think increasingly tenants want better buildings, more environmentally sound buildings. I think if we're going to hit those 2050 rules, we need to be minimising fossil low, fuels really. I mean, anyway. And I think you do have something else that's coalesced in the last couple of years. You know, you do have that geopolitical situation which has driven up the cost of fuel. It's a very separate situation, yes. Yes. but it has driven and it has coalesced with uh, the real need to improve the performance of buildings. So you've got, I think, a lot of stuff that will force. Well, when you were saying, oh, we'll just come out of the business, the buildings are still going to be there. Well, I just don't know what that means. Someone will buy them. Yeah, that's right. So there'll be a deal. The building, the building doesn't go away. You've just got a different ownership model. And, so, and you, you do wonder if there's a real kind of disruptive moment coming. You know, you've got all yes. these big organisations who just want to do things that they've always done. They value the properties in the same way. They trade in the same way. They stress test their portfolios in exactly the same way. But you do wonder if there's going to be other organisations coming up at the bottom of the market who are really going to... Um, innovate and drive the environmental future you know you can see that in different sectors things like airbnb things like uber you know all those organizations the retail high street all those type of things you've got some organizations that haven't prospered and it's probably those that didn't take on board the need to change earlier and those are the ones who are in real trouble now and those organizations that do see the opportunity and the need to innovate so those guys who drive the change. So there's a bit of parallel really with the health and well-being issue in offices and you know, we've got the standard, the well standard that measures health and well-being and the people that publicise that standard, it seems to be right that you know, people want to be in buildings that are sort of healthy and low energy and if, if you're in, you know, and attracting staff is really important so this all, you know, this, perhaps the smart money is in that direction. I, I, think, don't know. I think it is, I think you've got, but I think you've got, you've got two worlds at the minute in commercial real estate. You've got those landlords and those investors who very much still see it as a landlord investor led market. You've got those other types of investors and landlords who fully recognize that you're now in a tenant driven market, where it's the tenants who are increasingly asking more for a build, from a building in yes. comfort, um, flexibility, hybridity, environmental credentials, access to amenities, all those type of things. You know? And I think increasingly you've got an awful lot of buildings out there in the built environment and potentially less tenants and that means they're all driving and asking for more. And I think the best, the most savvy investors, the savvy landlords recognise now that they need to work harder to satisfy their tenants. The right. ones who are a little bit more stuck in the mud are those ones who are still hoping and praying that <laughs> they can build buildings and expect that tenants will come. It's that whole kind of, you know, the field of dreams idea, you know, yeah. we'll build it and they yeah. will come. It doesn't really exist anymore. I was wondering, John, if you know our vintage buildings that we're looking at, whether yes, we should go back, perhaps Kevin will join us and yes, yes. see whether the minimum energy efficiency standards are going to affect any of those buildings, because we're looking at innovators. That's right. Did they innovate too early, so they're left with a problem yeah. about these standards, or have some of the innovations proven to be even more valuable than they thought because of these, they didn't know about these yeah. minimum uh, energy uh, what's efficiency what's the route map back? Happy to join us, Kevin. Yes, that would be absolutely brilliant. I think it would be great. Fascinating. Fantastic. So that's a really interesting conversation we had with, with Kevin, wasn't it? You know, this yeah. whole issue about building obsolescence has been a topic uh, for, for the last 20 years. And, and often the obsolescence was being driven by changes in work practices, perhaps design yeah. fashion to a certain extent. And one of the things that always makes me feel old was the fact that the Warner Brothers Cinema that was built in, in Newcastle was built, occupied, became, was the, the bee's knees, and then demolished when the gate was built afterwards. So 
a building which was like the, the epitome of new technology, making other old cinemas obsolete, then became obsolete itself because of the a, a different arrangement of the market in in the city. Yes, it's, I mean, an, well, it's another change in picture. Um, Vinny feels very old indeed. <laughs> yes, I've been to the Manga Cinema, have you? <laughs> but but we... now, with, with this whole um, minimum um, energy efficiency standards, that's going to be ramping up the prominence of obsolescence and the whole focus on buildings becoming obsolete on a, on a technological way in relation to, to government uh, policies. Of course, this proposal to go to B by 2030 is, as you say, uh, a proposal under consultation. And yes. it'll be interesting to see whether it actually survives. It's, well, it's, a, it's a stiff task. I, I guess that, that what people would look at, if you've got an um, EPC of D, um, you know, I, I guess at this point you're thinking, well, what would it cost us to get it to an EPC of B? There's a tech, you know, yeah. technical, technical issue. What is it um, yeah. that, that needs to be done? I guess it's it's varied the solutions, and some would be easier than another. And certainly, John, I think as we look at our vintage sustainability buildings, as we're looking at them as we in the podcast, it'd be interesting to see how many of these innovators, as I said earlier, have ended up positioning themselves nicely for the MES regulations. We assume they would, but perhaps it, it, it's not the case. We'll we'll, we'll as you find out when we have a look at them, do you think? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the thing about this is certainty and uncertainty. And if you've got a building with a great APC to start with and a great display energy certificate for those that are calculated, it removes a lot of the uncertainty in the future as to whether they're going to have to be do a sack full of work to comply with the law by 2030. Right. I think we'll take this into our next discussion on our next building. So where should we go next? Well, there was a suggestion to go to see River Green, which River was Green. a fantastically brilliant building uh, developed by uh, Peter Candler. Was it 10, 15 years ago now? Uh -huh. River Green Developments, yeah. Big award. Yeah. yeah, and we could we can explore some of our uh, the, the, the prospects of that with perhaps the, the current uh, owner of the property, uh, Alliston Developments, uh, yes. Ian Bagger, and perhaps have a chat to Peter Candler, the original developer, and perhaps the architects. Yeah, Ken Turnbull at JDDK, or a um, couple of the guys there may, may give us, well, let's do that. Um, John, I, I have to say, at the end of the last episode, you but we were at Car Noise, and I did add in a Harley Davidson, right? <laughs> I don't know if you know, but I have nothing to add in. Uh, that's good. Well, just, we'll just have this the sweet home of an electric car. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how in those Marvel movies, if you stay till the end of the credits, they're often a teaser or something. <laughs> so, all I can say is there isn't. <laughs>